Well, good morning again, and thank you. If you uh, have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're getting really bad at the talking back and forth thing. All right, we can work on it next week, maybe. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, that's going to be found on page 961 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chairs there. We're continuing our series called Why Jesus? And what our prayer has been with this series is that you would feel better equipped to just engage in everyday conversations with your friends that have doubts. And for those of you that are here uh, visiting that have doubts, that you just feel more free to ask those questions, to talk about who Jesus is, why we consider him worthy of following, um, and begin to understand some of the questions and some of the answers that are involved there. Um, This week, we're going to focus on the problem of the Bible. We've been looking at common objections to the Christian faith. And so one great problem that we're presented with by many uh, who struggle with the idea of following Jesus is how can you trust the Bible? How can you trust the Bible? And so as people of the book, we want to try to deal with that question in a Bible-centered way, which uh, may sound circular, but that's uh, where our faith leads us. And so I want to try to frame this for you uh, in the category of trust, that this is a trust issue. What's really interesting is I I think that we're in an age now where we understand the scriptures from a scientific, archaeological, and historical means or posture more than we ever have. We, We know more about what the scriptures say. We can externally verify the scriptures better now than ever before in the history of the world. But the people that have committed their lives to those sorts of studies have greater doubt now than ever before. And so there's this irony there. Richard Gaffin says it this way. He says, we live in a hyper-hermeneutical age. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. So he says, we live in a hyper-interpretive age, hyper-hermeneutical age, which has led us, ironically, to hermeneutical despair. So we live in this day and time where we have more tools in our tool belt than ever before to interpret the scriptures. And what that's led us to is a place of, I don't know. I don't know what it means. I don't know if I can trust it. Doubt. David Garner says, the so-called advance of biblical scholarship in recent decades has produced a drunken narcissism. It's a little more negative view of it there. A drunken narcissism. There, there are New Testament scholars that say things like this. They say, um, it is so complex and so uh, difficult to interpret the Bible that regular folks should just leave it to the scholars like us. And I would say that's not our position, right? Our, our position is that the scriptures are actually clear and that the real problem is our own heart. Martin Luther talked about this idea of the scriptures being clear. The doctrine is called perspicuity, so... I think that's all the big words I'm going to throw out today. Hermeneutics, perspicuity, okay? So perspicuity is the idea that the scriptures are clear. Now, not all of the scriptures are equally clear, right? There's some parts that are harder to understand and some that are easier to understand. This is even said in 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter endorses Paul's writings as scripture and says some of what Paul writes is difficult to understand. So the scripture itself recognizes some things are simpler, some things are less simple. But Martin Luther says in his book, The Bondage of the Will, that, the, that we dare not confuse external perspicuity with internal perspicuity. What he means there is that there are external issues, right? Like, I may not understand uh, some historical issues that would help me to understand better this passage in the Old Testament, right? 
And once I understand a little more about how they live, then it would make more sense to me. But there's also the problem of internal unclarity or perspicuity, but the problem with our internal issue of not wanting to understand. And I really believe that's the root of the issue. I really believe the root of the issue is our hearts. The root of our issues is not wanting to submit to some external guide. Now, for those of you that have legitimate, real, historical, and textual questions, I'd love to talk to you more about that. We're not going to go into those details because, as I said, I think the root of the issue is our own internal desire to not submit to some other guideline, to some other authority. We're going to talk about that from the text here in 1 Corinthians 15. But I will say, I don't want to shame you out of those questions. I'd love to talk to you about those questions. In my own life, when I came to Christ as a 17-year-old, I was sure of Jesus and the gospel, but I wasn't sure of everything else. So there was this core message I was sure of that transformed my life. And then the rest of it, I had a lot of questions, and I worked through those for years. And I was thankful for people to patiently answer my questions and for books and for scholars that had written on these things. And so I'd encourage you, investigate those questions. But I'd also just encourage you along the way, consider your heart as a, as a part of the issue. It's a part of the whole project. 1 Corinthians 15.1 is basically what we would refer to as core canon. The canon is the technical term that we use for the measure of the Bible. What is Bible? What's Bible and what's not Bible, right? The term we use for that is canon. And there's this term that believing scholars use called core canon. And the idea is that there's canon within the canon, right? There's the core of the message. There's parts of it that are more clear and less clear. Well, there's the core, and the core is the gospel itself. So this book speaks of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul here talks about that in a summary form. He talks about it in just a few verses here we're going to read and says, this is the core. This is the, like, this is the soul of my message. It's of first importance. So let's read this, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news, I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas... Peter's other name, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, that was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. He's declared now the core, the core canon, that at the beginning of this book, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says this core message frustrates the, the wisdom of the wise. It, it confounds, it humiliates. It's a different kind of wisdom. It's a supernatural wisdom. And Paul says this is the core of our message that transforms people. It's of first importance. It's the bedrock that everything else is built on. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the message that you give to us. We pray that we would be receptive. I pray for those that have genuine questions that you would give them opportunities, books, friends, chances to engage those questions, to ask honest questions. God, for those of us that just resist hope, 
but because of our skepticism, resist the idea that any authority outside of ourself is trustworthy. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a famous story, a fairy tale called The Emperor's New Clothes. If you all heard of this fairy tale, it's a Hans Christian Andersen tale, and he actually adapted it from a German folktale, which they think was maybe adapted from some old Spanish folktale, but he changed it a little bit, and I think in some ways improved the tale and put it in his collection of stories. And in this story, uh, there is this very narcissistic, self-obsessed emperor who is all about showing showing off. He's all about showing off his clothes, showing off his money. And so because of that, he's tricked by these swindlers that tell him that they have mystical cloth. It's the most glorious cloth ever, and it has magical properties, so that when they make him a suit of clothes out of this cloth, uh, the people that are really important and wise will be able to see it for all its glory and beauty. But those that are of low birth and those that are not very smart and those that are stupid are not going to be able to see this mystical, magical cloth. And so as they begin weaving this cloth, the emperor is so self-obsessed, so narcissistic, that he pretends he's seeing it because he doesn't want to be the low-born, stupid person that can't see it, right? So he pretends he can see it. And then the people in his court, they follow suit, and they pretend, his advisors, they pretend that they can see it as well. And so finally the day comes when he's going to parade it out in front of the city and he's parading around in his underwear, right? If you've seen the cartoon, he's parading around now in his underwear because he's not wearing anything. They've tricked him. And it takes this little boy and his innocence and his purity and his willingness to face the truth, to cry out, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. He's not wearing anything. What's the deal? And of course he's ashamed and he realizes now that his fear is true. He's been tricked. And what I want to encourage you with this morning is that it's, it's really important that you have someone in your life that's willing to honestly speak into your life. And that's one of the key roles that the scriptures plays for us as followers of Jesus. No matter what culture you come from, there's going to be things you don't like in the Bible. There's stuff I don't like in the Bible. There's stuff you're not going to like in the Bible. And basically, we're culturally conditioned. So wherever we grew up, we have these presuppositions of what's right and wrong, what's beautiful and ugly. And we bring those with us when we read the Bible. And there's going to be parts of it that we're just not going to like. Some of it may be because we really don't understand it, right? We, we may actually be wrong about what it says. But many of them, we just don't want to be corrected. We just don't want someone telling us that we're not wearing any clothes when we want to pretend that we are. We don't want to go through that humiliation. And so I would challenge you today that my main idea is that we, we need this editing voice, this voice speaking into our life, telling us, hey, you might want to go this way, or you might want to go that way, or there's a problem here. We, we need that authoritative, that objective, that other voice to speak into our life. And many of us lack that. And I would challenge you that if you have a pick-and-choose view of religion, that you're basically picking and choosing the voices that don't contradict what you already feel in your heart. It's important for us as people to have someone willing to contradict us, have that child willing to tell us there's a problem, something's wrong here in your life. The first thing that I want to point out from 1 Corinthians 15 is that the Bible changes us. The Bible changes us. It doesn't leave us as we are. It takes us as we are and it changes us and transforms us into something new. And it's a very important idea. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. In the first few verses in 1, 2, and 3, he says, 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached or proclaimed to you, which you received. Okay, so this is a message that has to be received. It can be ignored, you can walk the other way, or it's received, in which you stand. So it's a, also a message in which you have life, you stand. It gives you ground, right? Consider, uh, think about the idea of being on a ship and everything's shifting around, and then you're on solid ground and you can stand now. You have solidness there. And this is the concept that he's talking about. Verse 2, he says, and by which, this message again, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This is talking about one of these difficult to kind of understand concepts in the Christian faith that James also refers really strongly in James chapter 2, where he says there's a kind of faith where you just say, yeah, that's true, but it has no effect in your life. James says that's not real faith. Like, that's not enough. Your faith has to have works, has to have transformation. And Paul is coming alongside that here as well. He's saying, I'll read it again in verse 2, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, if you're still clinging to it, if, if you're genuinely trusting it, otherwise you believed in vain. Otherwise, it was kind of a fake trust. You're like, I believe this, and then you're going the other way, and it's never really affected you. So Paul says, if you continue to trust in this, it's transforming you, it's changing you, it's saving you. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He goes on to talk about the resurrection and the resurrection power. And the idea is that there's this message, this core message, this bullseye of truth that we call the gospel. We summarize and we say, this, this is the essentials. We're sinners. We need a savior. He's come for us. He took our sins upon himself. He died and was punished for our sins. But not just that, he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. And he both takes our sin and gives us his righteousness so that when God looks at you, if you're trusting in that righteousness, he sees you through the lens of that righteousness. He sees you as beautiful, as righteous, as delightful as his very own child. God is pleased with you by faith in Jesus. That's life-changing. If you believe that message, if you hold fast to that message, that will change you. That will transform you. One of the interesting arguments that's pushed against the idea of the trustworthiness of the Bible, you see this come out in movies like The Da Vinci Code. It was out a few years ago. Books like that um, and goofy movies that are hardly even worth mentioning like Zeitgeist. Any of you ever seen Zeitgeist on YouTube? Just like ridiculously bad. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's just some of these things that, you know, and you'll see on the Discovery Channel, History Channel, critiques of, of early Christian history. And so in all of this, kind of the, one of the intellectual critiques of the Bible is that Constantine gathered these bishops together in this kind of smoke-filled back room in the 300s AD around the Nicene uh, Council. And what Constantine did is he had um, these guys uh, pick the books that he liked and his, his guys liked to be the Bible, right? Because that's when we've got this official pronouncement of this is the Bible. And what that would be like is that would be kind of like, like my dear mother is here, right? That would be like me someday proving in court that she's my mother. But that doesn't actually make her my mother, does it? That's just a public declaration. Like, now you know, this beautiful woman on the front row, this is my mother. Now you all know, but I didn't just magically make her my mother. She existed before I did. She gave birth to me. She gave birth to me. This message is what gives birth to us. 
This message is what changes us from not following Christ to following Christ. We receive this message. We hear it. It gives birth to us. We have new life now, hope in God. I'm forgiven. Now I'm following God. I used to not care what God had to say. Now I want to follow him and I want to do what he has to say because he loves me and he saved me. This message has a transformative effect on my life and it's, it's my mother, right? It gives, it gives birth to me. I don't make it that by declaring it. Just because I've just told you that about it is not what made it that. It, it had that transformative effect on me already. There's a great classic piece of literature here. Are you my mother? <laughs> P.D. Eastman. This is a great... Yeah, he likes it too. It's a good one. Poor kid's going around trying to figure out who his mother is. And he's asking the different animals, and like a truck and a toaster. I don't remember the story. But anyway, he's asking different things. Are you my mother? And again, I just want, I want you to think about this. There's all these people scurrying around trying to figure out what is Scripture, what's not Scripture. The Scripture transforms us. And so we in the West, we have these battles over the terms, right? Like we here in this church, our Constitution, if you read our documents, we, we love this term inerrancy uh, because it's like a brutally clear, just we don't think there's anything wrong with the Scriptures. We think it's true and reliable. Now, there are some people that kind of trust the scriptures that have a problem with that term, and I don't want to spend a lot of time today talking about the terms and arguing over the different terms and the difference between infallibility and inerrancy. Um, But as Christians, if if you're a follower of Christ, you're just going to trust the message. You're going to trust it. And so if if you want to have coffee with me, we'll talk about inerrancy and infallibility and all these other terms some other time, right? We can go into that some other time. But what I want you to see is that... uh, Church Christians in other parts of the world where they don't have all these scholars fighting about all this stuff, when they've heard the gospel preached to them, they just trust the message. Amen. They just trust it. They say, this is God's word. You know, we are over here having all these fights in our ivory towers about which word's the right word to use and debating these things. Bottom line is, do you trust it? Do you believe it? And what I would say from, from Paul, there's a core, there's a bullseye here, this message is changing, transforming, giving life to people that didn't have life before. That's our hope. Our hope is in the central message of this book. So application here. I'd say one application is that you recognize that this word has power in itself and therefore you read the word. You listen to the word. You, You place yourself under the word. And I think this is important whether you're a follower of Christ or even if you're not a follower of Christ. If you're a skeptic that's answer, uh, asking questions, read the Word. Read it. And like I said earlier, there's some parts of Scripture that are more clear and other parts that are less clear. So start with the more clear parts. I mean, I'd recommend read the Gospel of John or read the Gospel of Mark or read one of these parts that are more clear, that are simpler to understand for our time and our culture. Start there. It makes sense to start with the clearest part first. But don't just listen to what your professor said about the Da Vinci Code and this conspiracy theory and that conspiracy theory and all these other gospels. And Read it for yourself. It, it does have transformative power. And, and I would warn you, be careful. Because the Spirit works with His Word. And he'll, he'll start to mess with your life. He'll do things as you read it. But don't just take somebody else's word for it. Read it for yourself. Say the same thing for believers, right? We need to hear this core message of God's forgiveness for us in Christ because what happens is this message transforms us. By faith, we trust that Jesus loves us, that he's renewing us. We come under that teaching. We join a community of other Christians, and then all of a sudden it turns into some sort of club 
where we're pretending and we're going through the motions and we're trying to act like we've got it all together instead of really submitting to that message of grace. I mean, today is Mother's Day. A great example, moms, is just the all-pervasive weight of mom guilt that is pressing on your back all the time, right? I mean, you moms don't ever feel guilty about anything, do you? No? Yeah, right? It's just there all the time. It used to be the ladies' magazines you'd read in the dentist office. Now it's Facebook. You know, you get these messages of, this is what perfect moms do. And if you've got it all together, it'll look like this, and it'll taste like this, and it'll be like this. Your kids will be happy, and all, everything will be just right. I want to give you some bad news and some good news. Okay, so bad news first. You'll, you can never do enough, moms. You can never do enough. There's always more to do, right? There's always more to do. And so you have to rest in this message that Jesus says, done. Jesus says, done. He says, I love you. It is finished. I've accomplished it for you. You are justified. You are loved. You are whole in me. When you rest in that, then that sets you free to, okay, I can go back out there again. I can give it another shot today. He wants you to work hard. He wants you to be a good mom. He wants you to do these creative things, right? He wants you to cut sandwiches and stuff, but he wants you to do that out of a sense of freedom. Like, I'm free. Jesus loves me. Things are all right. I'm just going to go out there and give it my best shot today. I'm going to reset again the next day. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. When I yelled at the kids, I know y'all don't yell at kids, you know, but sometimes moms do that kind of thing or lose their temper. You know, I mean, you just ask for forgiveness. You reset. Say, God, will you, will you teach me? But make sure that the, the core message you're hearing is the acceptance and the forgiveness that you have in Jesus Christ. Because only that is going to set you free for the long haul to be able to do what you need to do. And that applies to everybody, right? Not just moms. We all struggle with that burden of I've got to... I've got to do things just right to, to keep the plates spinning, to keep the universe moving right. It's all up to me. Well, no, it's, God is in control of that. He's got it handled for you. He, he gave himself for you to love you so that you can work in freedom, so that you can love others in freedom. The last, or the, this is the second point, not the last one. I'm jumping ahead. second point I want us to look at is that the Bible is historical. The Bible is historical, and this, again, goes against what a lot of the modern scholarship would say. Um, a lot of modern scholarship, this is another reason we like the term inerrancy, so a lot of modern scholarship would say something like this, I believe the Bible is infallible when it comes to faith and practice, but it's got issues when it comes to science and history, right? Now, again, we can work out the details of that, but we're going to talk about science next week. There, there are some issues where, where we probably are reading it wrong, right? And so reconciliation between science and the Bible, or between history and the Bible, can take place one way, we've actually read the Bible wrong, another way, we've understood history or science wrong. So there's a lot of room for reconciliation that can take place, and different Christians differ on how that can happen. But don't just jump off and say, oh, it can't happen, the Bible's ah historical, it's not a historical book. The Bible claims to be a historical book, so we have to read it as a historical book. Like The, the core of the message is that Jesus came into history. And the Bible also understands the real world that that's unusual, right? It's not an everyday occurrence for God to show up and become a man. It's a big deal. And so the Bible has that kind of balance to it. That this is the way normal life normally works, right? Life is hard. We have to just grind it out. And then here are miracles. These are unusual things that break in to this normal mundane world. The Bible holds that balance. The Bible doesn't just say miracles happen all the time in its fantasy world. No, the, the Bible says this is a kind of normal, mundane world, and sometimes miraculous things break in. So the Bible claims that about itself. It is a historical book and a supernatural book simultaneously. It's not a choose one or choose the other. 
Paul says in verse 4, the message, he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So it was according to the plan of the Old Testament, we believe both halves of this book and that Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul is saying he came, he was raised, he rose to life in accordance with that plan, with that story. And it says, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter's other name, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Go on to the next section to talk about appearing to him, Paul, as the last apostle. But he's saying here that there were all these witnesses, right? This was a real historic event. He's saying most of these guys are still alive if you would like to talk to them. See the same phrasing going on a lot in the Gospels and the book of Acts where Luke gives these details. Luke also wrote Acts. And you see the same thing in Matthew and Mark and John as well, but really strongly in Luke and in Acts where he says, and this is the name of the, the title of the governor in this region. And then this is the uh, appointed mayor over in this. And this was the chief on this island. He gives historically accurate names in different provinces, right? And then he says, and this was this guy's cousin. You know this guy that we all know now while I'm writing a story? Well, this was his cousin that lived over here. You can, you can check it out. You can confirm it. And he's dropping all along the way. He's dropping these pieces that help us to cross-verify it and say, this is real. So a couple of weeks ago, there was this disaster in West. And they're investigating still to find out exactly all that happened. But we know it happened, right? I mean, I, I know it happened. I know people that saw it. And I was watching it unfold on the news live and had friends that heard it. This was a real historical event. It was unusual. It doesn't happen every day. That's why it made the news. It was a big deal. The resurrection is like that. And then in that it's, it's not what happens every day, right? Our everyday life is a life of death and disease and pain. The Bible says this unusual event broke into history. It really happened and it gives us hope that someday we'll conquer death. We had a memorial service this week, and in a memorial service, we're always, we're always both grieving the reality of the pain of what's happened, and we're also celebrating that we have hope, that this pain, that this death is not all there is. So again, the Bible embraces that same tension. If this is a real world, it's mundane, this is how history normally goes, and bam, this is this new twist on history. God is changing things. We're headed towards a future where everything's going to be made right. So I want you to see that the Bible can't be a non-historical, just about faith. It can't just be a myth that only applies to our personal life, but doesn't really apply to real life. Because the very message is that Jesus came to change our real life so that we can conquer death, so that this world isn't all there is. That, that is the message of hope that we have. I have this great quote by Gerhardus Voss from Biblical Theology, and if you want to hear it, you're going to have to come up to me after the service. I'm just going to skip that because we're out of time. So. It sounds really interesting, right? His name is Gerhardus, okay? The last thing I want us to look at is that the Bible is official. The Bible is official. Uh, it's not accidental. They were real sent messengers that knew they were sent. So this is another argument from scholars. Sometimes they would say, well, it's kind of accidental, right? You know, these guys were doing their thing. They had this little religion, this little club, and it just kind of blew up and surprised everybody. No, they knew they were messengers sent from God. As I said, Second Peter 3, 
Peter says, you know, we're writing these things authoritatively, and Paul writes them too, and we consider these scriptures. Paul talks about himself as an apostle, right? Literally, apostle means sent one. So Paul says it this way in verse 8. He says, last of all, he's talking about the appearances of Jesus. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So he's saying, I am one of the official messengers. I'm not worthy to be called that, but God made the decision and I am one. It says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. He's saying there's this core apostolic message, this official message. And so whether you heard it from me or one of these other official messengers, you heard the message It's official, it's endorsed. The word apostle means sent one. He's saying, I'm one of the sent ones. And again, he has this tension of, I'm an official messenger of God, and I don't really deserve it because I have this life of sin. He's not hiding the fact that he's fallible according to his character, but the message is infallible. And, And so a lot of scholars will push back and say, oh, it's this very human book. Well, yeah, it's a very human book. God breathes and speaks through these human messengers to give us an infallible message through fallible men. Paul says, I don't even deserve to be a messenger. I've sinned. I've persecuted the church. I've murdered people. God chose to speak through me and to use me. In 2 Timothy 3, the phrase that's used is uh, God breathed. It's a Greek word, theopneustos. And sometimes it's translated as inspired, which I think is okay. I mean, that's Kind of, uh, it kind of agrees somewhat linguistically with the idea of God breathed. Uh, but God breathed is stronger because in English we often use inspired to mean like, oh, that was nice, you know, like inspired sunset or inspired music. And it doesn't mean it in that sense. It means literally God breathed out these words. God spoke them. God spoke through human messengers, but he spoke these words is what the Bible says. So that's the challenge for us, that we would actually believe it and see it as Official. Paul knew he was official. He knew he was a sent one. He claimed that title. What's really interesting is to study how the words used in the, in the uh, first century context, the word apostle, so literally would mean sent one, has linguistic ties to the idea of what we would say now as a missionary, right? We have missio, we have missile, which means sent, right? And so literally it has that, that connotation. But the way the word was used in the first century was with an official certification of imperial cargo that would go on a ship. And so if something was on official emperor business, it would have an apostle that would accompany it. That that apostle would certify it. This is official. This is the business of the emperor. It it carries his authority. It's protected. So in the first century, that, that would be what people would think of when they would hear this word. They wouldn't just think of the literal sent one. They'd also think of imperial business. This is official. This is a big deal. And so we have to remember that the, the Bible claims to be saying something important. It's not, all, it's not all accidental. They were sent messengers. I have a picture here of construction. Uh, when the Rudy's barbecue was being built, there was a lot of mystery, right? I don't know if you live in the area when it was being constructed, but my son and I would drive by there every week come to church, and we'd wonder, I wonder what's being constructed there. I wonder what's being built. As it became... Uh, got bigger and it became more and more clear what it was, I started to hope against hope that it was going to be a Rudy's barbecue, right? (laughs) 
started to get really excited, like, this may be a Rudy's barbecue that's coming in. I, the shape of, I'm thinking this might be it. And so I didn't just entrust myself to the gossip around town. I went to the official website, right? <laughs> I went to the official website and I said, yes, good news. The Rudy's barbecue is coming here. It's official, right? It's been stamped. It's on their website. I don't think someone's going to spend a bunch of money to construct a fake website in Rudy's name, right? I think this is real and this is official. It's really happening. And I just want you to understand it in that context that that's, that's what the New Testament authors are saying. They're saying we're, we're official representatives of Jesus. He, he appointed us and he sent us out to testify to his resurrection, that this is real. This is really happening. And so we have to, we have to respect the text as it is. We have to entrust ourselves to it. It's written as an official message and we have to receive it that way. I want to close, just wrap up by talking about an illustration that Tim Keller used that I thought was really helpful, again, as we consider our heart posture towards the scriptures. And again, I want to encourage you, if you have, if you have genuine questions about specific texts, I'd love to sort through those with you. As I said, I spent years sorting through those one by one. And I encourage you to do that. Wrestle through those. But I want to, more importantly, stress that you consider your heart. And Keller uses the illustration of the Stepford Wives. Have you ever heard of that movie or book from the 70s, The Stepford Wives? Okay, just two of you. All right, well, I'll tell you the story then. Um, so the idea is that these, these men basically have these, uh, what they figure would be perfect wives, they have these robot wives, right? They somehow put a microchip in their head or do something to augment their wives so their wives always do what they want, never talk back, they're always happy, they always say, Yes, dear, and they're kind of like too perfect. It's, it's kind of a creepy movie, right? And so these wives are they're, they're almost too perfect. And when you see it in the story or on the screen, you, you can see this is, stories help us in this way. You can see how grotesque that is, right? You can see that that's not a real relationship, right, wives? That's not a real relationship. That's not real love. And what Keller argues is that if, if you're just constructing your religion based on a kind of a hodgepodge smorgasbord of I'll take a little of that and I'll take a little of that and I'll build it and I'll make my own Frankenstein, my own religion, my own Stepford wife that'll always say yes to me. You're not really allowing yourself to have a real relationship with the God of the universe. You're not allowing yourself to be spoken to. You're not allowing yourself to be edited, uh, to be changed. You're just saying, I want to I be in charge. I want to be my own God. And I'll construct this religion and I'll talk about it like I'm being objective and I'll pretend that, that I'm listening and sifting the different op- you know, options. But really, you've, you've got this puppet God that, that you're holding that's talking back to you. So I challenge you, no matter, no matter what problems you have with the text, to take the text seriously and to consider that it might be true and to consider this message of a God who simultaneously says, yes, there is something wrong with us, but I love you. I gave my life to pay for that sin, to accept you, to transform you. And when we consider that, I think it's, it's life-changing. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you speak into our life, and we pray that you would change us. God, most of all, we pray that you would help us to live fully, that we would love each other well, and we would honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be dismissed.